Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Music expresses that which cannot be said and on which it is impossible to be silent. So wrote Victor Hugo over 150 years ago, long before the advent of the motion picture. And yet, if the following nominees are any indication, his words are more true today than ever. Whether it be a mute woman falling in love with a fish or a fastidious dressmaker ordering breakfast, all the way from the beaches of Dunkirk to outside a small town in Missouri to inside a galaxy far, far away, music is there to stir our hearts, to express what cannot be said, and to prove once again that it is indeed impossible for music to be silent. The nominees for Best Original Score are... Dunkirk, music by Hans Zimmer. Phantom Thread, music by Johnny Greenwood. The Shape of Water, music by Alexandre Desplat. Star Wars The Last Jedi, music by John Williams. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, music by Carter Burwell. And the Oscar for Best Original Score goes to one of those composers for one of those movies, and it'll be presented at the 90th Annual Academy Awards on Sunday, March 4th, 2018. And since we don't know which of those five it's going to be, we thought it would be fun to take a little break from going down the AFI's list of the top 25 scores in American cinema history, as the rest of our podcast's episodes have been so far, and devote an episode to those five scores. Good enough? Good enough. So Andy, you've watched all of these movies, right? I have, luckily, because we're about to talk about them. Which is not to say that I've never... I have sometimes talked about my Oscar predictions about movies I haven't seen, because you can do that. Oh, you definitely can. But in this case, I have sat down and watched all five of them. I stood up and watched all five of them. I'm sorry to hear that. Some of them were quite long. (laughs) So, as I was thinking about these five movies, they are... This is not giving too much about our following conversation away. They are pretty different from each other, and the scores are pretty different from each other. Yeah. And in even beginning to think, well, where do these stand in relation to each other? Which is better? It started to seem absurd, (laughs) as I always say at the end of each episode when we try and rank the AFI list. And I thought, what are the Oscars even about again? Let me see if there is some official copy on what the Oscars are supposed to recognize. Ooh. Webster's Dictionary defines the Oscar winner as... The Academy defines the Oscars, first of all, as the Academy Awards of Merit. Did you know that they were the Awards of Merit? I knew that they were awards, for sure. So the first thing right there is that what we are looking for here is merit. But here's what's more interesting. Yes? In their section on the Music Awards, unlike many of the other sections, they actually specify what they want the voters to look for in... Rule 15, Special Rules for the Music Awards, Section 4 Voting, Paragraph A, works shall be judged on their effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, and relevance to the dramatic whole. Ooh. 
And I thought that these four criteria were great and well put and something for us to keep in mind. Well, I think that if we do that and really grade each of these scores on those four criteria, we will be doing work that the Academy voters have clearly not done for many instances of the award. Oh, yes. I don't think the Academy voters read these rules. No. It's a long PDF. <laughs> a PDF now? It's a 36-page document. Yeah. They don't have PDFs. You're right. Those are good criteria, and I think those are the criteria that you and I wind up talking about when we talk about scores, right? We do, but sometimes we conflate them. I guess what I liked about this was that they were separate, because I think we'll find that sometimes something is satisfactory in three of the four categories, or one of the four categories, and it's worth seeing them as four separate things. Okay. All right, so which one is up first? Uh, I think we're going to do them in the order as listed on the Oscars website, which is alphabetically by film title. So first is Dunkirk, music by Hans Zimmer. Dunkirk was produced by Emma Thomas and Christopher Nolan, and it was written and directed by Christopher Nolan. It stars Finn Whitehead as a young British soldier trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk, awaiting rescue. Mark Rylance is the captain of a small civilian boat helping with the evacuation effort, and Tom Hardy as an RAF fighter pilot. Andy, did you like this movie? I did like the movie. I thought it was highly effective. Yeah, I really like this movie a lot. It was unusual. It was unique, I think, among war movies in its really concerted attempt to create an immersive experience for the audience. Yeah, it was a war movie, obviously, in subject matter, but in construction, it was sort of a big suspense machine. Yeah. It was like an exercise in keeping the suspense up continuously for an hour and a half, or it was a short movie. I mean,. It was under two hours. Yeah, like an hour 46. But it was continuously suspenseful. Yeah, it was. And continuous is an important word for the movie overall and for the score. I think there's basically some element of score playing the whole movie long. Yeah, I think that's correct. I don't think there was a moment without score. Which is definitely unusual and impressive. Yeah, I mean, the score in this movie has a role that I'm not prepared to say it's unique in the history of movies, but... Certainly distinctive and striking. Like I said, the movie is kind of a machine for doing one thing, and the score is a vital part of it. Yes. Maybe the most important part of it. Yeah, I was thinking about how it's going for this sense of immersiveness, and you'd think that just being as realistic as possible would be what you need to do for an audience to make them feel immersed in something, to as realistically as possible recreate an experience. But unalloyed reality kind of isn't immersive enough. In the last episode, you keyed on the word packaging. This movie is a real good demonstration that you need packaging with your reality in order for it to really connect with the audience, to give it, you know, lubrication if you will. And I think what this score is doing is a really exciting job of packaging this immersive war experience. I have a different way of describing, I think, the same thing, which is that realism entails more than just what the camera can pick up. It includes the internal experience, which mm -hmm. doesn't come across in the picture and the sound. And 
this music fairly literally much of the time captures the heartbeat yes. of what it feels like to be scared. You know, the course of the movie is they're waiting on this beach and then intermittently the German planes fly over and bomb them and blow up ships and blow people up on the beach and the threat of this hangs over the movie the whole time. But minutes go by where it's not happening. They're attending to other things. They're queuing to get on the ship. They're carrying a stretcher to the ship. And that footage by itself would not contain the terror that they're all still feeling. We just have to remember that they're feeling it. But the music contains it because you can hear that the music's heart rate is heightened and that the music is queasy. That's in a sense realistic. It's being conveyed in a slightly metaphoric way. But the way you experience music is sometimes so immediate that it doesn't feel like a metaphor either. I mean, this music makes you feel sick and makes your heart rate go up. Because you match it. Yeah, it's literal. And you mentioned that moment when these two guys on the beach pick up a stretcher and start running across the beach to try to get onto the troop transport ship with it. And I think that's a key moment in the score, actually, that I wanted to bring up. Mm -hmm. Because this is sort of the introduction of distinct notes in the score. I think up until now, everything had been just sort of ambient pads and sort of flowing textures. But they pick up the stretcher, they start running... Now there's notes, there's a repeated string note. It's the simplest possible transcription of motion. It's just one repeated note. And it's kind of laying out the terms of the score that it's going to transcribe these motions and these actions in this very literal, direct way. I felt like the whole movie long, what it was doing was taking the contour of the drama and dropping a record needle directly onto the raw contour and just letting it play in a much more immediate way than we're used to music interacting with things. Yeah, it's true. The techniques at work in this movie, which have to do with this subliminal, as you say, transcription of states of mind, motions, heart rates, you know, levels of tension, just into a kind of musical layer of experiential information. Those are not new techniques. Hans Zimmer himself has been doing these in all kinds of movies for a long time now. Right. Usually this kind of dun 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 comes in to keep the tension up during an action sequence and then it goes away after 10 minutes of that. What's different about this is that the entire movie is structured around the effect of that material and it is to the fore yes. and it is continuous. This movie, you know, jumps from place to place, from character to character. Timeline to timeline. And the music defines connections that really are not there in the editing. They're just there through the music. So yeah, it's stuff that we might have heard before in pieces, but I don't think anyone had ever heard it before at this level, at this duration, at this prominence. Yeah, and it's part of this all-encompassing effort, almost, you know, an operatic sense of all-encompassing storytelling that we're going to tie everything together in this way. And it was very clear that the efforts of the score had been highly coordinated with the sound design to sort of pass sound elements back and forth. You know, if we're on a ship and we hear some machine noise on the ship... 
that repetitive machine noise kind of gets passed into the score and it becomes a motor element in the music even when we're not on the ship anymore. Forty gallons for this one. Forty gallons, understood. I saw some interviews where Zimmer said, you know, let's be honest, this is Christopher Nolan's score because he had so much to say about yeah. how it would work and where it would be, and it, it is so integral to the direction and conception of the movie. I think that Nolan had an interesting idea about the way he wanted to structure this movie, and he had a sort of musical effect in mind from the very get-go about how he wanted to tell this story. Do you remember, Andy, back in the class we took where we heard shepherd scales? Do you know what those are? I do, yeah. In fact, I saw reference to them in the article about this piece. So, yeah, go ahead. Tell people what shepherd tones are. Yeah, shepherd tones or shepherd scales is basically an auditory illusion in which it sounds as though there is a tone that is rising in pitch and it keeps rising and rising infinitely without actually winding up in a higher place. This effect is achieved by having a series of overtones, not to get too technical, they slide up the scale and as the overtones get towards a certain threshold, they go away and they're replaced with overtones lower in the scale. The key to it is that there are many elements moving up and as they go out of the range that your ear is attending to, they get quieter. So your ear is always picking up on whatever elements are in the middle. You don't notice the moment when your ear goes from one element to another because it all feels integrated. So Nolan has sort of been obsessed with these for a while, and he's mentioned how he's used them as inspiration for the effect he wanted to create in the contour of his movies, and he's described it as a sort of corkscrewing, that when a thing gets to the end of the range, it goes away, but then it's replaced with something on the other side of the range. Yeah, I think corkscrewing is kind of a good metaphor for it. So for this movie, he very specifically intended for the entire dramatic presentation to have an overall effect of corkscrewing continuously so that the three different timelines that were exposed to the beach, the ship, and the airplanes, they kind of spiral from one to the next and the tension is constantly being passed off and turning back around. And he had that in mind as his method for how he was going to generate this continuous tension as a sort of overarching metaphoric idea of storytelling. But then literal shepherd scales are actually also introduced into the soundscape of the score as well. said it makes you literally queasy this sense of you know there's no ground things are constantly slipping yeah i wanted to point out that there is sort of a tempo equivalent of a shepherd scale i'm not sure if there's a name for that but that this score i think has the strongest and most thorough use of a cellarondo that i've ever heard in a movie huh where you actually hear the tempo getting faster in the course of a scene that is pretty rare in movie scoring because it's hard to record it live and have it continually match up. 
and also it's just sort of hard to conceive in terms that aren't stable. This movie has almost every major sequence speeds up as it goes. And I'm sure they do this with, you know, computer sequencing. They probably made a tempo map of the entire movie and then filled it out. But it has some of that illusory effect that it's always getting faster, even though it sort of stays in the same center zone the whole time. It gets faster and faster and faster, and then the element that's gotten faster becomes a subcomponent of what now feels like the tempo that contains it. You, Mr. Dawson. Best thing I've ever done. But yeah, some of these scenes where it's just ratcheting up and up and up, there's no attempt here to sound like anything other than a very contemporary synth score. But I think that's also part of the effect that the movie is going for. Yeah, absolutely. It totally discards what you would traditionally think of as war movie sounds, you know, with august brass melodies and the snare drum. Well, there's no snare drum, but actually let's speak about the one melodic component that shows up here. I want to know what you thought about that. Yeah, I guess it's okay to spoil this because it's actual history. Yeah, the story is that a big part of this evacuation was achieved through civilian boats that showed up and heeded the call to save British troops. And when these boats show up, he uses the famous, I forget what number it is, ninth variation or whatever, Nimrod, from the Enigma variations. By Edward Elgar. By Edward Elgar, which even if you don't think you know what that is, it's this. You know what it is. You've heard this. has taken on a kind of, you know, unofficial anthem quality in England. English composer, yes, it's somewhat nationalistic. Yeah, it has a strong nationalistic association, and it shows up in this movie slowed way, way down and synthesizerized and turned into this near-ambient thing, but the chords are so recognizable that there's no mistaking what it is. all these civilian little boats show up at the beach, the denouement of the movie, and we hear, for lack of a better term, actual music uh, with notes and harmonies, whereas, you know, everything has been this kind of literal heartbeat ambience until now. It was breathtaking. It was just this moment of sweet relief of humanity, and I thought it was wonderfully effective. I did too in that moment, and I thought that the fact that it was using a familiar piece of classical music with particular associations was correct for that moment because, as you say, it's sweet relief, it's a reminder of home, of good, safe feelings in contrast to this landscape of terror that you've been put through for an hour. However, when it recurred again later in the movie, I started to think, well... This has been a wonderfully non-political movie about war. It has not really had a case to make other than that terror is terrifying, and then you can sort of extrapolate your political conclusions from there. 
and returning more than once to this thing with strong associations, I sort of felt like uh, the movie is kind of venturing into territory I don't think it wants to. That was the one move that they might have overplayed a little bit. Hmm. That's my one quibble with this score. Okay, I didn't have that quibble. Mm -hmm. I think I had already been won over at that point by how just purely effective everything had been up to that point. Okay, I think let's... Do you want to talk through those four points? So effectiveness, top marks. It couldn't be more effective. Absolutely. Incredibly effective. Craftsmanship, I think, is very good. As I say, it's well executed. But as you say, there's only one moment in this where you hear actual music. This is music as sound, music as gut wrench. Sure. So the craftsmanship here is a particular kind of craftsmanship that sort of stands outside what the category usually celebrates. Yeah, and that's something that I think it's fair to give Zimmer credit for. I think he's really carved out a niche where he does that well, and that absolutely is craftsmanship. Yeah, I guess I think of it in some ways as sort of a technical craftsmanship, which, again, not to poo-poo, just to distinguish somewhat. The third category here was creative substance, and, you know... Let's be honest, it's like kind of beats filled out with sounds. I mean, I would not put this album on. I guess some people might want to put a thing like this on for motivation. <laughs> if you're the kind of person who likes to work out in terror, I don't know when you would put this on. Uh, I have a lot of friends who, you know, writers who like to play scores as they're writing. I can imagine this being useful for that. This one? I don't know. I guess if you're writing something really skin-crawling. And then finally, relevance to the dramatic whole. Yeah, I think it's like maybe the highest of any movie uh, in recent years that has been nominated in this category. It could not be more relevant to the dramatic whole. Yes. Okay. I agree with all of those. Uh, yeah. I mean, the idea of whether it has creative substance is a hard one to suss out, I guess. But I think that's because it was traded off so heavily for the relevance to the dramatic whole. And I applaud that. Sure. I'm just saying it sort of slips toward the edge of what original score starts to be about because it's sort of like original beat. Because it's so close to just being sound design itself? I mean, it's more than that. It is musical, but it's you like... You can have a conversation about that, but I think I don't want to. Okay, let's go to the next movie, right? Let's go to the next movie. We gotta move. The next movie on our list, because of the alphabetical ordering, is Phantom Thread, score by Johnny Greenwood. Phantom Thread was produced by Paul Thomas Anderson, Megan Ellison, Daniel Lupi, and Joanne Seller, and it was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis as a dressmaker to the very rich in 50s London who has an extraordinarily demanding personality, Leslie Manville as his sister who runs his business, and Vicky Creeps as the young woman whom he takes on as a muse but who enters into a more complex relationship with him. So uh, how familiar with Johnny Greenwood were you, Andy, before he started turning up scoring Paul Thomas Anderson movies? I don't know if I thought too much about Johnny Greenwood himself, but the sound of Radiohead and sort of the musical choices they make, uh, I was familiar with. Yeah, well, listeners might not have been aware that the composer of this very sort of classically sounding score for Phantom Thread uh, was the guy from Radiohead. How about that? Yeah, I think in some ways it's just not surprising because you can really hear it in there. Like, um, there's a track on here, the one that he calls Alma on the soundtrack, which I think is the like New Year's Eve sequence in the movie. Uh-huh. It sounds like a Radiohead song. Mm-hmm. 
this kind of like morose classical groove is uh, something that they kind of trademarked a while ago. So I really recognize the connection. I don't think it's obscure or hidden at all. No, it's not. But it just you might not have known that. And it's interesting to learn. So what do you think of this movie? I thought this was great. I thought it was great, too. And it has been growing on me since I watched it. I enjoyed it for all of the beautiful production and just all of the bold, creative choices that Paul Thomas Anderson always makes. I enjoyed all that as it was going. But in the days since, it has just been growing. And I've been thinking, yeah, that was a really fine achievement. I agree. Yeah, I thought it was really a masterful film. And it is crucially dependent on the music playing through it. It's really about setting a mood. And, you know, what I was thinking about is we've said for a couple of other scores that we've talked about, I think scores that we didn't find all the way effective, that, yeah, we could kind of see where they were going for this kind of poetic, painterly reverie of a way to experience the mood of the film. In particular, you know, recently for Out of Africa, we said that that didn't really land for us, but boy, this is how to do that. This really gets it done. I was all the way on board with a poetic reverie of the music telling me how to feel on a fundamental level as I was watching these things happen. I'm so glad to hear that because I did think, oh, if John doesn't like this, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fully defend how much I do like it. So we don't have to argue. No, we're in agreement. The score definitely kind of floats past a lot of things in ways that, you know, in past episodes, I think I in particular have faulted things for not being sufficiently attached to the action. And there were definitely wide swaths through which this music was playing where, you know, it bridged a lot of different things that were happening and it felt unattached. But I bought it in this case as intentional because even though the relationship of the music to the drama even though the sync was kind of broad, it wasn't neglectful. It definitely felt intentional, and I still felt well cared for. That was exactly the dimension in which I wondered if you might take issue. But yeah, I feel like one of Paul Thomas Anderson's trademarks is a genuine, open-hearted interest in complexity of nuance in any given moment. And, you know, he trusts his actors to create richness that doesn't necessarily put across one particular point in a given scene. He puts his camera on them and then stuff happens and the movie is attentive to it rather than trying to manage it, overmanage it. These subtleties are not devices, they are, they're the point. You know, glances that people give each other and unusual pauses and things people say that don't seem to match their character, but they do in, in a way that you have to sit with. And so this music lives in the same space. Like It feels like he trusted the composer the way he trusts actors to sort of bring his personality and his mind to it. Mm -hmm. So you feel his mind working in ways that are not mechanically designed to support the movie, and yet they do because they're genuine collaborative contributions to the movie. Yeah, collaborative. You know, in the past, I know that there's been some controversy about the Academy's attitude towards Johnny Greenwood's contribution to P.T. Anderson films. In particular, I'm thinking of There Will Be Blood, in which Johnny Greenwood wrote some very compelling, exciting-sounding music in this sort of offbeat, classically-derived sound that he has that I found very effective while I was watching that movie. 
but the score was not eligible for the Best Score Oscar because a lot of the music was not written specifically for the film. It was classical concert music that he had written previous to the film Mm -hmm. that was used in there and was sort of tracked through it. And there was some controversy about that. While I was watching this movie, I definitely wondered whether the music was all written explicitly to picture, you know, we've talked about that before, or whether it was music that Greenwood wrote inspired by the story that then Anderson edited his film around. But ultimately, I decided I didn't care in this case, because yeah, it was a collaborative effort. And whether the music was scored to picture or whether the picture was edited to score, I just wanted to give it credit for being a collaborative storytelling effort that was just well thought out altogether. I think it was clear that the music was written for sequences of this movie, for elements of this movie. And beyond what I was saying about Out of Africa, where he just sort of wrote some tunes for that, it was written to complicate and deepen this movie and not just support it. Yes. Well, you know, when I watched it again, I was actually able to mark, well, yeah, it's not neglectful at all about its sync relationship to the picture. It has a lot of, you know, really canny entrances and exits. It's definitely paying attention to what's happening as it's going by. There's a sequence toward the middle of the movie with this woman... Barbara Rose. Yeah, that's a good sequence. Yeah, and it's unsummarizably layered what goes on in this sequence, so I'm not going to try to describe what the action is, but this woman only appears for this one, how long is the sequence? Six minutes, seven minutes, something like that? Something like that. There are all kinds of dynamics among all the characters. We're introduced to her life, they go to her wedding, they go to her hotel room afterward, and a piece of music plays through this whole sequence that is part of tying it together. But this piece of music goes through various phases and moods, which don't track exactly one-to-one to to where the edits are, but they are close enough that you feel that the development of the piece of music over its duration and the development of this complicated sequence over its duration are moving in tandem with each other. And so it doesn't matter whether actions line up. And a couple of them do. A couple of them do. A couple of them do. Maybe they emerged in editing. Maybe they were deliberately planned that way. But the overall substance of the movie at that point, the texture is such that it doesn't matter. Either kind of alignment is acceptable, a deliberate one or a serendipitous one, because your appreciation is of this richness. Minutes, will you come? Just stand still, please. It's really not my place, Barbara. This is what I do. This is my place here. I'm afraid I must insist that you come. But yeah, I did note some places in here where it did seem to line up. For example, I think one of the things that delineates this piece of music from the rest of the score is its use of pizzicato strings. And I think that corresponds to this character of Barbara Rose. And when she's in a press conference and somebody asks her a question and the answer is sincerity, which you know has this kind of ironic edge to it, the pizzas really come to the fore there. belongs to me. 
Anyway, why would I need her money? I have enough of my own. <laughs> What's Barbara brought into your life? I brought sincerity into his life. Sincerity. One kiss for the camera. Go on, give us a kiss for the camera, Miss Rose. The to the question. But I thought that was a very interesting moment where the music did respond to that small moment in the movie. You know, an effect that the score had on me overall, I keep saying that it was floating by, but yeah, there would be these little moments when it would alight directly onto the drama. You know, it would touch down a little bit and really connect with a moment in a way that would be really wonderful, that would give this import and then it would sort of float off again. But those little touchdown moments, I think, are all through the movie. Yeah, and I want to say, we're listening to this piece of music, like, this is not how the Oscar voters are supposed to vote, but I just think that this is gratifying, exciting, satisfying music in itself. I, you know, I enjoy listening to this stuff. It relates to my tastes. And he goes to a bunch of different places, and I think something worth pointing out about this movie is that it includes a lot of soundtrack music, as you say, you know, classical and jazz pieces that have been selected for the soundtrack. Right, not original music. Not original music, yeah. You hear Debussy, Schubert, you also hear Oscar Peterson. Yeah, some jazz standards, uh, My Foolish Heart, My Ship. In very particular recordings to create a very particular sound, there's a lot of piano, a lot of this kind of the sound of the intimate, luxurious classical and jazz recordings. Yes. But anyway, Johnny Greenwood's compositions have been, I think, beautifully calibrated to just live among those. Absolutely. You know, sometimes the piano would start playing, and I would not know for several bars whether we were in the original score or in a borrowed piece of music. That effect in itself is crucial to how this movie works because so much of the movie is about the world that Daniel Day-Lewis's character constructs for himself out of style, you know, couture and money and luxury that he buys for himself. And so the idea of the non-original music being essential constituent part of this world, but then the world has its own character and they live together felt really vital to the movie that that was done well, and it really was done well. I agree, it was done well, and yes, I marked the same thing, that it was impressive that the Greenwood compositions didn't feel at all out of place next to the Debussy string quartet and the Schubert and the jazz standards. And I noted that he was very careful at how he recorded the piano. You know, the first few sequences, you hear this fairly simple kind of two-chord thing that he invents to evoke the world of high fashion that this guy lives in. It's just these two chords back and forth, but he's recorded the piano in this way that evokes old jazz recordings, even just in sound. The particular hush, the where the mic is in relation to the strings, like, that has an effect on me. There's just such attention to these details. And the theme that he keeps bringing back, I mean, essentially the theme of the movie, is this thing that sounds a little like Bach, didn't you think?
it sounds like a requiem. It sounds like a Mozart requiem piece. Doesn't it sound like it has this kind of funereal sense to it? It does. It has a kind of, you know, steady tread. But every time it started, I was like, yeah, it sounds like the Bach well-tempered clavier uh, E flat minor prelude the first phrase oh yeah everybody go uh, look up the well-tempered clavier <laughs> e-flat minor prelude all right well you don't have to if you don't want to but the, the first phrase da 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 yes i should not have made fun that's a very good connection i think you're right that it intends to sound like that and there were other places I heard him imitating Messiaen, I heard him imitating various composers, but not imitating in a sort of, oh, he's a hack, he's just ripping it off. Kind of just entering a world in which you could play those pieces next to this movie. So, yeah, I think it's a superb achievement in serving this movie, which is what we're here for, right? Yeah, great. Here, here. Let's move on. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just say the four things. Ah. Effectiveness. It doesn't have a particular attempt to effect one specific thing. It's effective because it's music, it's moving, it's touching. So it's effective in that sense. It's effective for the movie and that the movie benefits from that. Craftsmanship, uh, high, right? I mean... For sure. For sure. Creative substance, absolutely. Standing alone creative substance, it has high value. And relevance to the drama in this complex way that we're talking about. It is relevant to the drama that exists because it's there. (laughs) Well, because it's complex and because the drama is so complex. You know, one other thing I wanted to say about this movie, actually, about the function of the music in this movie, that the characters are kind of the essence of this movie. It's about this relationship, about the dynamic between Daniel Day-Lewis's character and Vicky Creeps's character. And their character sketches are not fully filled in. We really just see sort of glimpses of behaviors, glimpses of things, and we kind of fill in the picture the sophistication of the music is really essential in convincing us to fill it in in a believable way. I think if you just had these scenes without this music, you might start to poke holes in these characters. Why? I don't think a character who did this would also do the thing he does in the next scene. It creates this kind of psychological Hmm. case for the wholeness of it. That's what I thought was going on. Yeah, I agree. You trust it. It's showing you these things and because it's playing this music that's so intrinsically lovely, but also so convincingly evocative of the whole ethos of these characters. Yeah, you trust the whole presentation more, I think. Yeah, it's sensitive music, so you're willing to trust that these characters are being portrayed sensitively, which, of course, they are, but... Yeah, but you need a little help, because they do some weird things, and... Uh, they're very weird. Yeah. They're, they're weird people, They and so that weirdness is helped a lot by the overt sensitivity, humanity of the music. Yes, well said. Okay, next up is The Shape of Water, music by Alexandre Desplat. The Shape of Water was produced by Guillermo del Toro and J. Miles Dale. It was written by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor and directed by Guillermo del Toro. It stars Sally Hawkins as our mute protagonist, Richard Jenkins as her somewhat older friend and neighbor, Octavia Spencer as her co-worker at an imposing government lab, Michael Shannon as a sinister authority figure at that lab, and Doug Jones, whose role is listed in the credits as Amphibian Man. What did you think of the movie The Shape of Water, John? I liked it. 
I'm a little unsure why I feel a little hesitant about the movie overall. Can you explain to me why that is, Andy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you felt a little hesitant about it, but I had mixed feelings about it. Yeah, tell me them. Maybe that'll help me. I thought that the movie was charming. Sure. Attractively produced. Definitely. Had appealing performances in it. No doubt. And just overall had a good heart. It was a sympathetic movie, but it didn't feel like it gelled in a way that I was pretty sure it was trying hard to gel. Huh. I'm not sure that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. I kind of was aware of a series of parts. Hmm. Okay, I'll go along with that, yeah. It was a series of parts, many of which I liked very, very much. But yeah, I'm not sure that the whole was greater than the sum of them. Uh, I want to say I'm a big fan of Alexandre Despas. He's one of my favorite people scoring films today. And I usually like his scores very much, and I like this score very much. And I can pick out certain musical sequences in it that were really cool, that would be really fun to listen to on their own, and that worked really well with the movie. What, what hesitancy am I treading around here? What did you think of the score? I felt that the score, like the movie, felt like it was searching for an identity hmm. rather than having found one. Yeah. And that it had a bunch of proposals for what its identity was, and I guess I was sort of aware of them as problems being solved. Like, how do we get people to understand that this is to be watched in the point of view of a fairy tale? Okay, there'll be fairy tale music. Right. And how do we get them to understand that this should be seen romantically, even though it sort of looks like a horror movie? Okay, well, we'll play romantic music. And just a lot of sort of checks and balances and trying to triangulate some center. And that in itself made me dubious that there was a center. Yeah, yeah, I like that explanation. For sure, one of the definite goals of the score was aiding the fairy tale feel of the movie. That's clearly what Desplat set out to do here, especially in the first act of the movie, in which the score seems to be ostentatiously juxtaposing with things that we're looking at. She walks out of the place where she lives, and there's fire engines, and there's sirens, and there's upsetting things happening, but the music is totally playing against it and feeling like this kind of fantasy world. And then this character, she even whistles the tune of it. It's like the music is for her and of her, and it's setting her and her outlook apart from the real world. And even when she she seems to work in this government facility that has these serious things to do with serious government secrets. Sort of scary. I mean, sort of done in a pulpy, scary comic book evil lab mode, right? Right. But the music is not playing in evil lab. The music is still playing this peculiar character sees the world in this fantastical way and we're in her headspace with it. You said that there were different proposals for what the identity would be. I wonder if one of the proposals was explicitly that it could sound like Amelie. Didn't you uh, guess that maybe? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that Amelie is 
something that this movie was not trying to evoke as a conscious reference for the audience, but that they were deliberately like, let's cast an Amelie spell, that will help us. Yeah, that was definitely one of the points they were triangulating from. And I think the fact that the audience is going to, the word Amelie is going to go through their heads is a problem. I think you have to actually <laughs> be careful with yeah. evoking too much of that. I don't really understand why there was an accordion in the mix here. I feel like it was just asking for trouble. Hmm. I mean, she doesn't live in Paris. <laughs> well, why don't you like it here? And you were praising Elmer Bernstein for using an accordion, even though they're not in Paris. Well, exactly that, because in Elmer Bernstein's case, he used it to sound like the wheezing wind or kind of uh, broken down music box sounds. And here it's like... Yeah, it sounds like it would sound if it was in Paris. It sounds like Amelie. Right. That association is being poked at. It wasn't like he reinvented what an accordion sounds like. Or what you could do with an accordion sound. Yeah, right, exactly. Actually, John, I have to interrupt us here because I'm looking at this interview online and it turns out that... Desplat did have a reason for the accordion. He says in this interview, it had to do with the fact that they say that the creature comes from South America. Quote, I wanted the creature to have a sound that would be coming from South America. And the instrument that I was thinking of was the bandoneon, which is the tango instrument. So I used the accordion playing lines with the sound of a bandoneon. And then later in this same interview, he says, I don't use the sound of the accordion as a French musette, typical Parisian 50s sound. Neither of the phrases that he's playing are coming from Musette. They're coming from the tango. It's different. End quote. Uh, I mean, okay. Uh, yeah, I feel kind of like that about this. I mean, I got to give him credit for what he says, I guess. But it definitely felt to me watching the movie like the accordion sound was much more attached to her character than to his. It was definitely part of the establishing of her fantastical world. That seems like a bit of a stretch to me. And... This distinction, I mean, it might be musicologically correct, but movies have not been that careful over the years, so the distinction that he's drawing... Is right, is not one that occurs to most audience members of yours, right? I mean, Hollywood has already abused these differences in types <laughs> of accordions, so it's not like the audience is sensitized to it. Whether or not it sounds like South America, it sounds like our cinematic impression of French romance. Right. Even if he was going for this very fine distinction, it doesn't come off that way because, yeah, it sounds like Paris. It can't not. It can't not. And he surely knows that. And I wonder if, in fact, that's why he brought it up at all. <laughs> all the associations he uses are the standard ones. And some of them he does very beautifully, like the thing in the opening titles, which is lovely, where he has like a glass harmonica... This rippling harp. And someone whistling to all create this kind of underwater. Yeah, you know who's whistling? I think it is Mr. Desplat, is that correct? It is Mr. Desplat himself doing his own whistling. Very lovely. I wish I had a whistle like that that had that real kind of vibrato warmth to it. Oh, 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 
It's a lovely underwater effect. It's not like he invented it. This is a standard underwater sound, but he does a beautiful job of it. It's not only that, it's a sort of a standard water sound. I think a lot of the score is in 6-8 time, which has classically always been associated with water, with flowing. A lot of these fairy tale sounds are playing in this. Mm-hmm. And the sort of circular going around in a flow intentionally. I think that's, again, one of the proposals of identity that it was kind of sifting through. I like that it's gentle, I like that it's beautiful, I like that it's fairy tale, but I actually do also have a criticism of the musical material here at the beginning. There's this like, kind of rocking back and forth between just two harmonies for a long time. That stasis that he sets up, which I think is supposed to be kind of a floating, hovering, dream feeling, I think didn't help the movie. For the first 10 minutes, at least, of the movie, he really just returns to this same material over and over, and you hear these two chords a lot. And I, after a while, started to feel like it was just a little too inert to be our introduction to this whole world. It was a little too narrow a window to meet the whole movie through. So I did mark that even though, yes, he starts out very concertedly with this fairy tale sound, he clearly then went to escalate that as the stakes raise and as the main character gets embroiled in all these uh, unusual doings and the bad guy comes to the fore and makes things difficult. There's a very nice sequence of escalation. First, it was this fairy tale sound, and then it gets kind of cross pollinated with this real world, real stakes sound. one sort of central heist sequence where they kind of have to go on this adventurous undertaking. I felt like it was a very nice place for the tension escalation to get to. And it's still in six, eight time, you notice, but it uh, has a lot of cool energy in it. There's this cool off-kilter piano, and I thought that whole extended sequence was pretty cool and was well done. I want to counter that. Okay. I actually took issue with that sequence. Oh, okay. A cymbal comes in, a hi-hat comes in in the middle of that cue. Once the percussion came in, I thought, it shows that you couldn't tell this whole story. You didn't find a language in which you could tell the whole story. And I really think that was essential. I feel like they've got an evil lab, they've got a monster, they've got a love story, they've got a... What year is it supposed to take place? It's early 60s, I think. It's about the changes in society in America. It's about the Cold War. It's also about this sort of, you know, you see a lot about the bad guy's home life and his suburban American dream and how it's got this sort of amoral drives behind it and he does horrible things to people. All of this stuff, that doesn't sound like the same movie. And for the music to be like, well, I'm in fairy tale mode now, and now I'm in escape mode. This is the heist sequence, so it's going to sound, you know, like heist music from a different movie. I, I felt like 
this shows the limitations of your other solutions, that they don't have a musical relationship to your solutions to this scene. But you're saying that there was one in the rhythms, which is something. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, well, I'll take what you're saying, too. I think that very nicely uh, articulates why, yeah, I didn't feel all the way connected with this. I really liked when you said that it shows that you didn't come up with a style or a sound with which to tell the whole story. The fact that, yeah, you have to reach for this external heist sound. I guess where I was going with listing all the elements in the movie is I think that there could have been a kind of emotional vocabulary and emotional language in the music that knew about all of that, that knew about mm -hmm. the bad guy and the good guy. Yeah. That knew about the love and the horror. That knew about the uh, seedy undercurrents to the picturesque suburban 1960s lifestyle. As you say, you know, there is some fun to be had in those early scenes when they're like cleaning a giant scary looking rocket engine or something like that. Right. And you're hearing this uh, blissful music because that's her outlook on the world. Yeah, there's sort of an ironic tension there between the image and the sound. But ultimately, the music is going to show you what is true in the world of the movie. And the message of the movie was not that fairy tale love wins out in the end because it's completely impervious to this other stuff. It's that it comes in conflict with it. And that conflict didn't feel addressed. Okay, fair point. I will say that I did find it welcome to hear the happy fairy tale theme again in the movie's final moments in this kind of uncertain what exactly is real and not ending. Mm -hmm. I liked getting to hear that again in that moment and I liked getting to appreciate that it is lovely music there. But yeah, if you look a little deeper, I think I agree with you ultimately. Limited to the first of the four criteria here, just effectiveness as music, does it have an effect? Yeah, I think it really does. If you ask me what I have been humming from these five scores, it is the theme from Shape of Water for sure. It is beguiling and effective. And yes, in the scenes that are just kind of floating love and dream, yes, it's a wonderful effect. Yeah, it's a wonderful composition for floating love and dream. I think he's a really good composer. I do too, yeah. And I think he does very good work consistently. And I'm just critiquing in the context of these five movies. Some of them fit yeah, together better than others. That's right. That's our job. Craftsmanship. I think the craftsmanship is very high. Very high. Even the sequences that I don't think fit with the other sequences, standing alone, they're very good. Like, that's a great heist track on a soundtrack album. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying, yeah. Creative substance, here's where I feel it's a little weak. Yeah, I think this is where most of our criticisms fall. And relevance to the dramatic whole, I feel like the fault is not his that the dramatic whole was disjointed but it doesn't address that problem. It doesn't solve it. Yeah. And I can fantasize that it would have and miss that. Okay, I'll go along with you there. I just wanted to throw in a couple of tidbits about this before we leave this movie. At one point, she has an actual fantasy in her head where she imagines that she is doing an old-fashioned song and dance number with her partner, and it goes off to this black-and-white Art Deco set in which they dance this dance and sing this song. Mm -hmm. Did you know what that set was from? 
What the set is from? No, I don't know what it's from. Yeah, that is an explicit reference. It is an exact recreation of the set on which Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance and sing Let's Face the Music and Dance. It's an Irving Berlin song, right? Yes. From the movie Follow the Fleet. Okay. One of the classic Astaire Rogers musicals. And that big curly art deco light thing that they're dancing around is an explicit lift of that and i wondered if he was having some fun you know follow the fleet it's a navy movie about water you know it's a water thing let's face the music and dance water something sure maybe that's cool anyway that's what that was also there's a little bit of our friend france waxman who shows up when they're watching a movie in a movie theater and it's a movie called the story of ruth one of these biblical epics that we've spoken about and it was a waxman score that got to have a little cameo here did you know who was singing during that dance sequence i did see the name but remind me it's renee fleming the opera singer Uh uh-huh doing jazz voice i had no idea that she did that but it should be noted also that this is not an original song you know this is an old song there's a lot of old songs that show up in this movie you know they're not part of the score Desplat didn't write them and i guess i would have liked them if they were going to be used so prominently i would have liked them maybe to have been incorporated into the score and referenced but no it was uh, again just sort of one of the solutions that they came up with to convey what they wanted to convey that didn't all the way uh, gel together, like you said. Yeah, it's an interesting movie, and like I said, a sweet and charming movie. And And attractive, yeah. And the people in it are very appealing, except for the one who is horrible and is sort of magnetically horrible. Right, but a wonderful performance of being horrible. A great performance. Yeah, so I have basically warm feelings toward this movie, even though I just spent the last 10 minutes being critical of it, just to be clear. Okay, I think that's where I am as well. I have warm feelings about it, but yeah, it wasn't my favorite one. Okay, so let's move on to John Williams' score for Star Wars. Star Wars? That's a movie from 1977. You mean Star Wars The Last Jedi. Yeah. Is it not called Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi? They've learned better than to do that? Yeah, I think that's right. They can't figure this out, can they? The word episode was banished after the prequels. Has bad associations, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Star Wars The Last Jedi was produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Ram Bergman, and it was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, based on characters by George Lucas. <laughs> it stars Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Andy Serkis, Lupita Nyong'o, and a cast of thousands. Doesn't it? Probably. CGI thousands. So I have a memory of... Back in college, we were talking about Star Wars as we were wont to do, and I said something like, I don't really consider myself like a full Star Wars nerd. I don't know all that much stuff about, you know, the extended universe and everything. And you said, oh yeah? And you asked me a series of little quiz questions like, what's the name of the cloud city that Lando is the governor of? And I said, Bespin. And then you asked me a couple of other things, and you said, yeah, you're a Star Wars nerd. (laughs) You know plenty. Well, you know, it's funny. The standards have changed since then. I think that people listening now will be like, everyone knows what Bespin is. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Star Wars has really undergone inflation since when we were in college. (laughs) Inflation, that's one word for it. Yeah, there's sort of an impossible amount of it around these days. But I think it's probably fair to say that... The scores to the original trilogy of Star Wars are the scores that I've probably listened to the most times. Do you think that's true for you, possibly? 
Yeah, I can identify a Star Wars score by a smaller segment of music than probably any other score. Is that phrased well enough? I know them to an embarrassingly fine degree of detail. (laughs) Yeah, I think I do too. So it is from that perspective that we're now coming to this eighth movie in the series. So Andy, there's a lot of different opinions floating around about this movie. Where do you fall? That is oddly tough. When I saw it, for the first time, I thought, yeah, this is pretty good. It's got good stuff in it, and the bad stuff is not unprecedented. And uh, I feel okay with it, if not thrilled by it. Okay, I liked it a little better than that. I think I was thrilled with it when I first saw it. I was thrilled by it. And I'm aware of the things that people didn't like, and I can see what they're saying about it. It's interesting to consider, and it's a kind of complicated phenomenon, how you want to strike your relationship to the whole Star Wars monster. I mostly liked it a lot. I really don't know how I feel about this movie still. (laughs) And it varies based on what I'm focusing on in it. And uh, that's sort of how I feel about the score, too. Hmm. I can be enthusiastic about aspects of it. Other aspects seem frustrating to me. Or So what feels frustrating to you? I think some of the issue with this movie is that this complicated task of staying within the tradition, but also giving the tradition, you know, a hard shake shaking off some of the dust. I think that was the intention. That's a balance that has to be very carefully struck. Some people are angry. They say it went way too far. And I feel like music kind of centers the audience in their relationship to a movie. And if the music had somehow centered us a little better in why this was the right thing to happen for Star Wars, why this was emotionally satisfying, I feel like John Williams's attention was maybe a little too focused on just kind of spooling out his material over the whole thing, which is indeed what a Star Wars movie calls for. So I don't exactly fault him for doing that, but I missed a little extra insight that the music could have brought. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I do think that this movie called for some more new Star Wars stuff. The goal of the filmmaking was certainly to strike out in a new direction and to introduce new ideas, new tropes into the Star Wars storytelling universe and to distance themselves from the old ones. And I think specifically to subvert the old ones. Yes, yeah. To sort of lure you in with them. And as they signal out for the trailer, this is not going to go the way you think. This was sort of the mission statement for the movie. Yeah, and I think that did open the door for there to be some new Star Wars sounds that there kind of weren't. Yeah, it sounded very straight ahead Star Wars, which, hey, you know... It's the number one score on the AFI's list. Straight ahead Star Wars, what could be the problem? But the way it used to be is that the scores for the Star Wars movies, each one introduced a series of new themes. Casual listeners might not fully realize that one of the most memorable, iconic themes from the Star Wars universe, the Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme, was not present in the first movie. That theme was written new for Empire Strikes Back and was only introduced in that second movie in the series, along with Yoda's theme and the Han and Leia love theme. And those new themes that were written for the second movie were sort of presented in a medley over the end titles. And that wound up being the tradition in these scores is each one would introduce some new themes for the new characters and situations, and those would get presented in this summary statement in the end titles, and you'd hear what the main new musical ideas were. So what are the new musical ideas and themes that get showcased in the end titles of this movie? John, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not focus on the end titles, but I'm guessing the 
theme that I would call Rose's theme. Yeah, I wondered if it was sort of meant for Rose and Finn together. Sure, I'll take that. There's a new character in this movie, Rose, and I think it is a problematic character. And I think that a theme has been written for her, A, because she's new and John Williams has this routine of writing something new in each movie, so she stands out as the thing, and B, because selling this character is complicated and maybe he thought he could help by writing some music. And I think the theme he wrote is a lovely theme. What do you think? Yeah, it definitely feels like it's in the canon of Star Wars themes. And how do you feel like it functions. It, uh, I mean, it shows up when uh, when she's doing stuff. <laughs> you tell me. Um, I think that it is a misfire in dramatic terms. The character is kind of presented as a nerd and like a techie and an everyman who feels intimidated by the glamour and celebrity of the character from the last movie that she spends her time with, Finn. And I think that by being presented in this way, you know, she's not that special, she's not that amazing, and we sort of have to grow to like her over the course of the movie, John Williams may have felt that, well, we can help this along, we can make the audience love her by putting in this music that sounds like spirit and grace and love. And to me, it's one of those cases where they are protesting too much. It had the effect for me of pointing up all the ways it did not sound like this character or this performance or this role in the movie felt like they shouldn't have tried. And in fact, in trying, I think they screwed up some of the things that people are disliking about this movie. The whole storyline that that character goes on feels extraneous, that people don't understand what the point of it is. I think part of that arises because the music doesn't help you with the story. It's trying too hard to help you with this person. Oh, interesting. Like there's a crucial juncture in the movie where she and Finn and Oscar Isaac Poe are all like, we're going to make a plan and we're going to save the day. And the plan that they make and their attempt to save the day forms this whole half of the plot of the middle of the movie. And I don't think the music had the long game in mind about what the point of that plot was. I don't think the music shows you where you're going. But we can't get to the tracker. It's an A-class process. They'll control it from the main bridge. Well, I mean, yes, but every A-class process has a dedicated outbreaker. But... But who knows where the break room is on a Star Destroyer? Oh, the guy that used to mop it. If I can get us there, I can shut their tracker down. It just is trying to give heart to Rose because she's the new character and doesn't have dramatic goals clearly in mind to give form to the movie. Hmm. Don't you think that a lot of the criticisms of this movie... Like, well, that didn't pay off, and that didn't feel very Star Wars, and I don't understand why they had to do that. The music could have helped answer the, some of those questions. Hmm. Wouldn't even have had to do that much. Well, I think a lot of the criticism, yeah, was about whether it was Star Wars or not. And I kind of enjoyed the ways in which this movie seems to intentionally want to blow up 
some of the tropes that are important to what Star Wars is, but the score definitely wasn't doing that. The score is Star Wars, for sure. When we first checked in after seeing it, you said it was more Star Wars than usual, which I think is right. He uses his old themes. A lot. Yeah, there's a lot of sequences where we hear the Force theme, just a very straightforward statement of it. Which, you know, let me say off the bat, this is maybe one of my favorite melodies in film scores. I think it's a wonderful melody. It shows up in many of your favorite cues. It's the binary sunset from the first movie. It's the throne room. A wonderful melody. And it deserves to have a lot of different things whose weight it bears. But yeah, he kind of is slotted into using it in these prefab kind of ways because the characters are talking about the Force yeah, that's kind of not what's at issue in this movie. Yeah, don't you feel like its meaning has necessarily become diluted more and more as it becomes less and less the appropriate tool for the job? Hmm. It was designed to support the plot of a movie 40 years ago. Now I feel like he's a little hampered by these sort of legacy themes that don't directly relate to the dramatic needs of the material that's in front of him. Yeah, like there's some prominent use of Leia's theme in this movie, and, you know, if this was the first Star Wars movie that he was scoring, I don't know if he would write the same pretty lilting melody for General Organa as he wrote 40 years ago for Princess Leia. In fact, what you hear for the scene for Leia that I guess we won't spoil, but she gets a big sequence where something happens, and you hear the concert arrangement of her theme that John Williams has been playing in Pops concerts for the past 40 years that was never in a movie before, like he cut and pasted it out of the published score. And it kind of works, but it also feels like a borrowing. Hmm. And I actually read when Ryan Johnson was asked what it was like to work with John Williams, he said, well, basically we, I guess he and the music supervisor and the music editor put together a temp track from other Star Wars movies and sent it to him. And we're like, you know, this is sort of what we had in mind. And then he followed that or diverged from it as he wanted. And I thought, yeah, there are elements in this movie that sound like some music editor putting together other Star Wars stuff. And John Williams being like, all right, I'll use the old stuff if that's what you want. It's not usually his choice to do that. Yeah, well, earlier when I asked you what themes play in the end titles for this movie, I think what I was getting at is that outside of the one Rose's theme, I don't think I was getting to revisit material that had been clearly attached to particular things. There's, you know, some stuff that's borrowed from this action sequence and that action sequence. And then there's a couple of appearances of themes that were written for The Force Awakens. And yeah, and then just sort of a lot of material that didn't really have strong symbolic significance to me. The same way that those three themes I mentioned in the entitles of Empire Strikes Back did. I think it might be fair to say that there's not a takeaway Imperial March in this movie the way that there was for the second in the first trilogy. Are you saying that that means that this score is lesser? Because that always seems a little bit like a secondary objective to have themes that you can take away, as you're saying. Yeah, I agree. It's a sort of a secondary objective. Well, then again, maybe it isn't. Because my complaint 
has been that the score didn't quite get into the heart of the dramatic moves as well as it could have. And maybe coming up with a piece of thematic material that really encapsulates this particular Mm. movie is a crucial tool that he didn't really construct for himself and for us. On the other hand, let's just look at what makes up a Star Wars movie. Sure. It has always been scored wall to wall and music is pulling it along. And the music does have to sound like that same world. It's yeah. it's one of the main things that keeps the world pinned together. So these action sequences where they're flying around, yeah, it's correct that they sound like all the other Star Wars action sequences. Yeah, that's right. And it's also, you know, remains a marvel and a thing that is just thrilling to me that this guy who's in his 80s is putting out hours of music every year. I mean, this is a long movie, two and a half hours, and most of it is scored. And most of it, more than 90% of it, is not borrowed from anywhere else. It's original new music. Yeah, which is stunningly accomplished. Like, like, you know, I'll let the cat out of the bag here. This is uh, stunningly accomplished stuff, and anyone who says otherwise is thinking too hard. I mean, John Williams gets a nomination every year he writes a movie, pretty much, and it is not wrong. Right. Just listen to a couple of minutes, just a couple of seconds of this action music that is buried under sound effects, that is just filling time of the action. Listen to how much craft and skill and excitement, genuine excitement goes into this. Absolutely. So many movies, so many of these comic book movies where they kind of like get an awesome groove going yeah. and that covers the action. And John Williams is... Yeah, he's in a different world. A different tier, yeah. Yeah, he's in a different, absolutely a different tier. I actually think that this movie, with the score it has, would have charmed more people if the music had just been turned up a little bit. Huh, okay. Because it's always competing with the sound effects. Don't forget, when you're watching the movie, the music we just heard actually sounds like this. Some of these action sequences, I felt like, you know, this is great. Make the explosions not obscure the music, and I am being drawn through it by all of this frantic energy. Yeah, each moment is thrilling and new, and the craftsmanship of it is beyond. You just don't see it anywhere else. We are spoiled by it. He does it all the time. He's been doing it for so many years, and he gets nominations for it all the time to the degree that I think there's even a little bit of eye-rolling. Well, of course, yeah, a nomination for him, and I think he's won the award far fewer times than he should have just because he's nominated so frequently that people think it's a matter of course but let's not overlook what great work he's doing for sure yeah let's just pick any moment from this movie his craft is so good for like spooky moment when she goes in the cave not thematic stuff yeah And 
And some of these high dramatic moments, like there's some good stuff in this movie, no matter how critical you are. There's some scenes of high drama. Yes. He just shows up and knows exactly what to do. Yes. Old school. It's all terrific stuff. It's all this thrilling, virtuosically expert stuff that he's just able to reliably churn out. It's really remarkable. Yeah, and I guess my mixed feelings about this score are inherent in the word churn, Uh because I feel like he has churned out a beautiful score (laughs) from start to finish. And I wonder if he could have done something better than churning, but he has the best turn in town. Yeah. So the fact that we have these quibbles and all oh, did it tell this story in just the right way, you know, I think that has a lot more to do with the fact that the stories that are getting told are these heavily bogged down relics that are still getting propped up and it's hard to know exactly how to relate to that. And, you know, that's what's coming through in our saying, well, maybe there should have been a theme for this or this theme didn't go where it needed to go. It's just a bizarre phenomenon already. It is, yeah. How much Star Wars there is, which I'm sort of surprised to hear myself saying that because I'm, you know, I've been a Star Wars head my whole life. But that's what it is. And uh, none of that is John Williams' fault. (laughs) And I, no matter how much of it they make, as long as he's writing it in this style, I will savor that there is this pop culture thing that is so dependent on so much complicated sophisticated orchestral music yes it's just wonderful there's two hours of lush orchestral composition here of the highest caliber in movie scoring terms absolutely okay so effectiveness it is moment for moment as effective as movie music gets i think talking about just the music itself okay craftsmanship the highest the highest the highest craftsmanship creative substance well the creative substance that we will talk about when we talk about it in 1977 well that's some substance we can really talk about that yeah today it is um, today it's been percolated up to here something borrowed and something blue yeah (laughs) i like that and relevance to the dramatic whole maybe this is where your comments about what gets a theme and what doesn't fall yeah i take issue i think that it's a really rough assignment in a sense but yeah i'm not sure it was as relevant to the dramatic whole as it ought to have been okay fair enough all right let's move on all right so we just have one left yeah so the last score that is nominated is carter burwell's score for three billboards outside ebbing missouri Billboards Outside Evan, Missouri was produced by Graham Broadbent, Pete Chernin, and Martin McDonough, and it was written and directed by Martin McDonough. It stars Frances McDormand as a grieving mother, Woody Harrelson as the chief of police in the titular town, and Sam Rockwell as a dim-witted and troubled police officer. Andy, I think you said you didn't really love this movie, did you? I didn't really love this movie, did I? I didn't really love this movie, did I either? What do you think of the score, though, John? Well, look, Carter Burwell 
is a really excellent composer, and he is probably best known, deservedly so, for his long collaboration with the Coen brothers. I think he scored all of the Coen brothers' movies. Mm -hmm. And I think he only got into movie scoring in the first place because he signed on to their first film. And... You know, I always like the scores to the Coen Brothers movies. I think he's very sensitive, and I think his particular strength is to give things gravitas. I think he lays a ground with the music that makes everything feel inevitable and important and just so. I think he's very good at that and very practiced and accomplished. And I think he was called upon to sort of make similar moves for this movie, which I think wishes it were a Coen Brothers movie. And, you know, the moves are there and he's doing the things that he does. They're just not adorning a story that I was really into. So, you know, not his fault, but that's how I felt about it. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I think that this movie wants to take some moves from Coen Brothers movies, definitely, and I don't think it has the visual style or sort of the editing flair to pull off the flavor that those things have when the Coen Brothers do them, so the flavor ends up being a little confused. But I think it also is thought through in theatrical terms. Martin McDonough is a playwright first, before being a filmmaker, and there's just sort of exaggerations that are maybe meant to play to the back of the house. That's how I kind of felt about what was going on in the drama. I think there were just sort of dramatic moves in the architecture of the story that were playing to the back of the house. Oh, that's what I mean. I don't mean exaggerations in the performances, which I think are pretty good overall. Yeah, that's true. I liked the performances. I liked all the people. But that the story and its turns and its many surprises, it seems proud of its surprises. Yeah, for me, it was just sort of a lot of balls up in the air. It was just a lot of ideas of things that might be dramatic or ironic or tragic sort of thrown up into the air, and I don't think they really added up to anything once they landed. That approach to things of just like... Let's pack as much drama, as many different takes on the subject matter. Look at it from all sides and give each actor stuff to do. It has a theatrical quality to it, and I feel like... Sometimes I go to a play and it'll have an incidental score that feels to me like it doesn't entirely match up with the flavor of live performance, of the sort of focus on actors and their rhythms. You know, in between scenes there will suddenly be music that says like, this is hardcore, this is yeah, this is the real America, or whatever, and you'll feel like well, this is a play, you know it's kind of a lurch when you get to that music. <laughs> and I feel like that's sort of what went on in this movie. Yeah. It's a kind of Coen Brothers aspirational feel and yeah, when Carter Burwell does that in the Coen Brothers movies I think it blends very well, it gels very well with the feels that they're able to create, and having the Carter Burwell music in there is sort of the equivalent of having, you know, Sam Elliott intone, well, that's just the way things are, (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) you know, the music is telling you that's just the way things are. It just comes in after a thing happens and goes, that was a thing. Like, Francis McDormand appears on TV and says, you know, I'm doing this because the buck stops at Chief Chief Willoughby. Willoughby. Why single him out? He's ahead of him, ain't he? The buck's got to stop somewhere. And the buck stops at Willoughby. Yeah, the buck stops at Willoughby. Dead right, it does. Well, 
that's a thing. Here's some very simple music. And I don't mean to denigrate it for being simple. I mean, I think he does a very admirable job of making things seem inevitable with his music, with his simplicity of his music. Yeah, I think his technique that he uses, I agree with you, to good effect in many films over the years, is to provide moody support with something that is spare. Yeah. He carefully picks a few very small pieces of material and then uses them to give weight to each thing that happens by returning to these same spare bits of material. And he does that here, and it is smart and professional and, I will say, effective in the sense that we've been using the word effective here. Each time it comes in, it has the emotional feeling it's supposed to have. He pretty much has two pieces of material in this movie, one for grief and one for anger, I would say. Sound about right? Sure. The grief one is this kind of weeping guitar line. Right. I think it's supposed to sound like a renaissance song, a little bit countrified. It's supposed to sound like Flow My Tears, like a lute song. These chords underneath it, but honored guitar. This classical weeping line and these antique sounding stoic moves in the bass and that's mm-hmm. stoic that's a great technique and it's a well-chosen piece of material for what this movie wants to be about and then the other piece of material is this uh, thing with the bells and the clapping and the yeah. stamping and there's a mandolin in there too yeah it's supposed to sound like Morricone don't you think yeah sure it's supposed to sound like a western showdown Yeah, that's right. It sounds like a shootout. And that's for the anger and the vengeance. Yeah, when Frances McDormand is sort of striding with determination to seek her vengeance. I think Carter Burwell has done the right thing here to deal with, to my mind, problematic material, which is to keep pointing back to some basic emotions that organize this kind of meandering series of events it's just not something i can get excited about because it wasn't a rewarding movie for me i also think this is the kind of inconspicuous workmanlike scoring that gets done in lots of movies and doesn't win oscars and you know then you get to what are we celebrating but like he did a great job absolutely he did a great job in a way that's just not not flashy it's an odd thing to have nominated. Yeah, it is a little bit of an odd thing to be nominated. And I think it comes from the sort of reflexive nominating and voting process that sort of gives these nominations just to the movies that everybody has agreed are the Oscar contender movies. Yeah. And for some reason, this has bubbled up into the <laughs> list of Oscar contending movies. Oh, so sure, let's pick that one. Yeah, and the music was good, too. 
he's never won an Oscar before Carter Burwell. He's been nominated for a couple of his Coen Brothers scores. And if he winds up winning for this one, I sort of feel like it would be a shame because it would be like wearing the wrong hat on your Hall of Fame plaque. Like he should go in for for a Coen Brothers score. I guess. I mean, I think there's also, a, if they want to just honor someone's years of good work and their yeah. career and their talent overall, it depends what Oscars are for. If it's really for saying that this was exceptional, what did I say it was for? Merit. Merit. It has merit for sure. Yeah. You know, I think it is interesting to point out, though, that there are two crucial sequences in the movie in which we see crimes being committed. Violent crimes are committed. The movie's about a violent crime that we didn't see committed, but we see these two violent acts happen uh, sort of in a similar location in the movie, and neither one of them has Carter Burwell Mm -hmm. score for them. They both use pre-existing songs. You know, they both are what I keep calling soundtrack moments. I thought it was really interesting that those weren't scored, and I thought, yeah, what would the score do here? The score doesn't have a move for this, because you can't say about these outlandish acts of violence, you can't say, well, this is just the way things are. You know, it doesn't work. You need to have kind of an outside perspective on them. You need to convey that, uh, you know, we're looking at these from a different place than from where we were looking at these things that were just inevitable and important and weighty. That's how theater will work. In the course of a scene, when something exciting is happening, that's not when they bring in the incidental music. They bring it in to connect the scenes. It's sort of the glue that convinces you that this is a whole. So here, yeah, mm-hmm. the voice of the music is there to say, and so continues the tale of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Whereas one of the characters getting angry at the other, that's something we're watching sort of through our opera glasses. Yeah, I think I'm with you on this. He's a really professional, competent guy. He's very good at this non-flamboyant, simple, but weighty technique. And I just wish it was put towards an overall storytelling effort that I felt landed a little bit better here. Uh, You know, earlier I said about Hans Zimmer that he does kind of that same stuff in a lot of movies, but it's never so prominent as it was in Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I thought, okay, well... Dunkirk, this is a great time for him to be nominated for this kind of work because the movie was so much about it. This movie really wasn't about it. Mm -hmm. You could have made this movie with no score. It would have been pretty similar. It probably wouldn't have felt quite as whole, but it wasn't dependent on the music. The music wasn't leading the way. I feel like there could come a day when Carter Burwell's music really leads the charge. Why not? This really isn't that movie at all. Yep. Oh, so let me just run off the things so that I've done them for all of them. Effectiveness, yeah, I would like to say that in the sense I'm taking effective, yeah, this is effective. Every time it comes on, you feel what it is meant to convey. That's true. Craftsmanship is strong in this... In this intentionally sort of limited, simple palette. I think the limitation of the palette is actually admirable. I'm impressed by that. Absolutely. I meant to say it's in this uh, sort of servant role, like Mm -hmm. the subsidiary role. Yeah, Creative substance is, again, deliberately limited. Right. You know, the whole soundtrack, if you listen to every cue, is quite short. And if you listen to the unique pieces of musical material, right, there's just not that much. Yeah, a lot of it gets repeated pretty note for note from one scene to the next, which is fine. Yeah, which is fine. It's just, in terms of substance, it's deliberately limited. And relevance to the dramatic whole, again, you know, well-chosen, limited. I guess limited is the word here. Yeah. 
All right, well, we've gotten to the end of all five of these nominees. So I think it's pretty obvious which ones we really liked and are going to vie for our favorites. Yeah, I think we almost said it already. (laughs) I think it's fair to say for both of us that our two favorite scores were Dunkirk and Phantom Thread. Yeah, because of the particular peculiar nature of what Dunkirk is, I think I would put Phantom Thread above it just because I don't have to qualify what music means in this sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote more notes. There are more notes, yeah. And there are more different ideas about what notes do. So there's just more there. Mm-hmm. And so that's my top choice in terms of personal taste. You know, I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to put Phantom Thread or Dunkirk at the top of my personal list of these nominees. But I think I'll go along with you. You know, sort of similarly to what I said about Planet of the Apes, I really admire it, and it is doing something unusual, and it's creating its own language, really, to tell a story in a different way. But at the end of the day, I think I most admire using music in a traditional Western musical mode to tell the story, and that when you can really make the music resonate with the story using the rules of music that we're all used to, I think that's what I most responsive to. But I really did admire Dunkirk very, very highly and was very excited by it. But yeah, I think I'll go along with you, Phantom Thread, then Dunkirk. Yeah, and just in terms of ranking, although I think that both of them are a little off of the... Yeah, they're both off of the beaten path, for sure. Off the mainstream, off the beaten path, because the way that Phantom Thread relates to the movie is also sort of... Yeah, broad. And oblique, or at least the connection is loose. There's a lot of give. Right, but I think it's very cannily loose, and the space that's between the picture and the music winds up being interesting space right. for us to live in and think about. Yeah, it makes use of the space. Yes. And on the flip side, Dunkirk is extraordinarily tight, tighter than usual. Right, there's no space, exactly. Right. And that's also very interesting. Right. Yeah, you're right. Both of those are coming at what to do with film music in unusual ways, and I applaud them for it. I really do. Yeah. I think that Carter Burwell's score for Three Billboards is coming at what to do with film music in an extremely ordinary sense, which is fine. And again, we praise him for his skill at doing that. But compared with what else is on this list, it's uh, it's not breaking any new territory. At the top, we have these non-traditional achievements, and that is exciting to us. And then the other three, I would say, are traditional in various ways. Right. And yeah, for me, the three billboards is the least interesting of them because its aspirations for what the music is going to be were the most, again, limited. The other two, Shape of Water and Star Wars, are each to some degree ambitious about how much the music is going to get done. And they're both highly accomplished in their execution. Yeah, there's a degree of fanciness. They're showier. Yeah. Star Wars, I think, you know, we're all so used to it. If this were the first Star Wars movie, you'd say, wow, that was such a music-forward movie. It was so musical. Yeah. Now we're just kind of used to how that works and, in fact, sort of ignore it because that's just what we accept as how Star Wars works. Yeah. Talking about Star Wars in this case and being forced to come at it from this attitude of, well, gosh, we've heard this a lot of times, really made me look forward to when we're going to get to talk about it when it was a new thing and what an achievement it was then. But, you know, he won an Oscar for that. He already got the Oscar (laughs) for writing this music, which, you know, I think is sort of a fair point to say, well, I don't know if he needs to win another Oscar for Star Wars. He's already got Oscars for Star Wars. 
I mean, I don't honestly care who wins Oscars for what. As far as Star Wars goes... <laughs> oh, why do we do this then? <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. Uh, at least we're almost done, I guess. We're almost at the end. Yeah, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. You didn't need to listen to this. doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the opposite of a spoiler. As far as Star Wars goes, <laughs> the amount of music written for that series over these 40 years is incredible, and it's constantly changing. This score is different. You know, it has a different flavor and a different character than the previous one. And that one was different from the one before that. Yeah. As much as it seems like it's a cookie cutter thing, it's not. He brings himself to the creative task slightly differently each time. Yeah, that's true. So should we try to guess at what we think will win? Because I think the surest bet that I can offer our listeners is that the John Williams score for Star Wars The Last Jedi will not win. Zero percent chance. I concur. I would never say 0% chance. All right. That's just not how percentages work. (laughs) It can be. Very small chance. I think that his nomination is seen as a matter of course. I cannot imagine the voters voting in a majority or a plurality or whatever for this. No way. No way. Okay, so what is going to win? I am usually disappointed with what the Academy picks for score because I feel like they don't Think about the uh, these very criteria that you listed off at the top of what a score is doing and what makes a score good differently than what makes a movie good. I think they usually just reflexively give it to whatever movie was considered to be an Oscar-type movie and also, oh yeah, there was some music in it. Right. They say it's their night. Right. It's their night, and so they won for music too. And I think the score award is particularly guilty of just sort of glomming on to things being some movie's night. I think more so than acting awards or other things like that. I think score winds up getting less independent thought. Again, back to why I read that thing in the first place, that's the only category I saw flipping through it where it specified, please vote based on these criteria. (laughs) The rest of them, they kind of assume you'll understand what, you know, best supporting actress means. But here they're like, think about the score in the movie. Yeah, well, I appreciate them making an effort. (laughs) So because of that, I think that you make your favorite for this award, whatever you think is the favorite to win Best Picture. Is it going to be Phantom Thread? Is it going to be Three Billboards that wins Best Picture? I'm not sure, but my prediction is that whatever wins score will win Best Picture. Oh, I don't make that prediction. You don't? Okay. My prediction for Best Score is The Shape of Water, which won the Golden Globe. Okay. My imagining of how the logic for a voter works is... Uh, Three Billboards, I love Frances McDormand. I don't really remember the music in that. Mm-hmm. Dunkirk, yeah, oh, that... That thing with the clock. That was so intense, but um, I don't know, is that even music? Let's just give it sound. <laughs> Which it highly deserves. I hope it does win sound. Star Wars, obviously, I'm not going to vote for Star Wars. Right. And Phantom Thread is too divisive. People are going to be like, I don't get what that guy's doing. It's artsy. Huh. I think that Shape of Water is... A nice middle-of-the-road kind of movie. Yeah. And as I said, it's the one that I'm humming. That's a good point. It's the one that I came in when I was like, yeah, that had pretty music in it. It had a catchy tune. Yeah, you're right. It's music that you're aware of, which, yeah, I think winds up being an important determining factor. And, you know, Shape of Water could very well win Best Picture, too. I could still be right, or our two predictions could wind up both being right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's exactly for these reasons that it's just not that interesting to me who wins the Oscars. But it's nice that there's an occasion when everyone comes together to, for at least 25 seconds, think about sound editing. Everyone in the country at once. (laughs) Like, wow, sound editing. Yeah, I wonder who did a good job of that. I like the occasion, but the awards, eh. 
All right, the awards. Eh, let's end there. <laughs> yeah, and here, here, let's also celebrate that there is an occasion when we spend 30 to 35 seconds yeah, that's right. as a nation thinking about film music. You and I, Andy, we're doomed to spend a lot more than that thinking about film music, and we're going to do it next time when we finally do get to John Williams' score for E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yes, thanks for coming with us on this timely detour. Yeah, as you put it last time, this special interruption episode. That's right. Interruption is over. Normal programming will resume shortly. And, you know, maybe this interruption episode was your first exposure to our podcast, so uh, if you liked what we had to say, I hope you'll go back and listen to our somewhat more in-depth discussions about the other scores that are on this AFI list that we've been going down. And if you've been listening the whole time, then, uh, hey, leave us a review on iTunes. Make sure you're subscribed and tweet at us at Scoresettlers. Please. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. That wrap-up seems so short. Did we want to say more at that point? It's probably a pretty long episode at this point, right? It is pretty long, yeah. Yeah, just like the Oscar ceremony itself. It ran long, probably. Yeah, and we didn't even change into our second costume halfway through. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we were wearing tuxedos the whole time, of course. I hope you were imagining us wearing tuxedos as we were talking. Yeah, but we didn't change from a black tuxedo into a white tuxedo between the third and fourth. I did. (sighs) Good night, everybody. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's the end. Good night. Good night.